Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where we have a sound effect, and then we don't. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. I, I really hope um, you, you surprise them one week and throw in, like, a duck quacking or something. Every once in a while, I do a different sound effect. I don't know if you're yeah. not listening or not, but every once in a while, I, I mix it up. I, I, I scan through, but yeah. Okay. We're busy making them. We don't have time to listen to them all the time. I, mean, I do. I'm editing them, but Whitney, not so, so much. So, if, yeah, if we sound dumb, then it's just out there. We just charge yeah. on ahead, and the, and the dumbness shall remain. Anyway, my name is Linda Biani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. He's, he's Whitney. Yeah, we, we said we, that part. We already. did already. What are we, what We've are we done that so many week? millions of times. <laughs> I've taught, you ever, like, drive to work and then forget how you drove to work because you've taken that route so many times? Yeah. It's like, how, what, what streets did you take? Oh, gosh. I don't remember. I was I, just sort of doing it. Yeah, you've done it. I've done it a million times. Nothing remarkable it's, happened this it's time. A, so it, it's just one of a million forgettable, it's boring, humdrum bad, uh, memories. It's not that, not that you, podcasting uh, uh, is humdrum, but it's just we say our names yeah. over and over. It's especially bad if you, you forget, like, if if you took a bath this morning yet, or mm-hmm. if you had breakfast. Like, am I hungry? No. Wait, did I eat already? I don't remember. Well, I'll oh, do man. that. Oh, you don't? Okay. No, but sometimes I'll, like, I'll be, like, groggy, and, like, I'll, you know, uh, uh, my partner will nudge me, and they'll be like, yeah. hey, your mom's calling, or something like that. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And I wake up, and later I'm like, uh, I haven't talked to mom in a few days. We should call her. And they're like, you were just dead, weren't you? And I'm like, yeah, I don't sleep good. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, it is almost midnight and it is time to review some movies over at Critically Acclaimed. This week on Critically Acclaimed, you're reviewing the new releases Jungle Cruise. The Green Knight. Is it Green Knight or The Green Knight? It's The Green Knight. The Green Knight. Stillwater. Uh, help me out with this one. Is it A.E. Mofe? A.E. Mofe. It's okay. a Nigerian film. And the new Netflix rom-com, Resort to Love. And Stillwater. Did you say Stillwater? I said Stillwater. Okay. All right. And Resort to Love. Uh, yeah, I was trying to distract from that. Uh, yeah. There's a, there's, I, I had to see this movie for no other reason yeah. than because it's not like proud of being about love it's ashamed of having to resort to it that's like that's like you know like uh, I, uh, that's I, like having a romantic comedy uh, called uh if we must <laughs> sure there, there is one called just go with it yeah like whatever, like, whatever it is just whatever There's it's gonna be called dumb. get over it yeah with uh, uh, ben foster like this one's just like eh. If we if we have to resort to love to I've, get you to watch this movie, I found so if be uh, if a so film, be it would be so a good be one it, as well. Yeah. It'll just turn out whatever yeah. the movie. I've I've discovered that if you, if you see a if there's a film title with a pun in it, it's you're like a fly to sugar. You'll just fly right to that thing. Well, yeah, yeah. Why it wouldn't does, I? You, you you didn't you didn't see the Green Knight this week, which is no, the one all the critics that, are raving about. Was but, that a pun? Uh, no, no pun. Then in the why Green would Knight. I go see that? Well, we see that but you did manage to see Resort to Love. <laughs> Resort but, to Love was right there. Resort yeah. to Love was on Netflix. Resort to Love made it easy for me. I'll, I'll go. I'll go out of my way, of course, to see you know five-hour Filipino epics from uh, you know all. Um, Let uh, me ask you t- this: t- take place in what's, like really dour circumstances. What's what's what's, what's harder for you uh-huh. to watch a five-hour Love Diaz mm. epic or mm. to watch the like ninety-minute Resorts to Love? Be Look, honest. Uh, be honest. Be honest. What's harder for you? Watching, I, I, in terms of like access, like if it's just on Netflix. No, no, no. I'm, talking about, or, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about access. I'm talking about for you. Like, what well, is easier for you to do? I, I would rather rewatch like a five and three quarter hour Love Diaz film than mm-hmm. some of those 
horrendous Hallmark Christmas movies you've had me sit through. Then who's the real trooper here? <laughs> Maybe it's me. That's all I'm saying. Maybe You're out there so. watching like this, all this like ultra classy. Well, I don't know about ultra classy, but uh, life changing world cinema. I'm in the trenches. Okay? Someone has to do this, and it's going to be me. Anyway, we're reviewing a bunch of new movies this week, and those are them. What would you like to start with, William? Well, we usually like to start with the big one, and the big one is Jungle Cruise. This is the new movie from Disney, based on yet another theme park attraction, Mm -hmm. the Jungle Cruise ride, which was... One of the first rides to open at the park. It was their opening day. Yeah. And... Uh, 1955. It, this is the... Uh, I, I counted. This is the 12th film to be based on a Disney park attraction. Mm-hmm. And not and not a something that's... A movie that's been turned into an attraction. Are you including all of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies on yes, that list? Yes, all, okay. all five of the, the Pirates movies. Okay, then we got uh, so, Country Bears, yeah. uh, Tower yeah. of Terror. Yeah. Uh, seven. Uh, hmm. Oh. Others as well. Mission to Mars. Mission, oh, I always haunted, forget about Haunted to Mansion. Yeah. Uh, Tomorrowland. Yeah. Uh, and two others as well. Um, <laughs> two other uh, very exciting ones, no doubt. Yeah. Well, Jungle Cruise and uh, and one that I'm well, they, they, now, now forgetting, but there is a twelfth one. They, uh, they, they turned Tron into like kind of a ride at Disneyland, but then they the did Tron mover, Legacy. Yeah. So I think you. Well, that's well, Tron, Tron was a movie first, and then they put it as part of the People Mover. Whatever. So I think it was it was a, a film first. I'm just trying to be um, I'm just trying to be pissy and at it and ruin the number. Well, that's the, it, make, yeah, isn't it technically thirteen? It's fine, whatever. Anyway, Disney uh, Disney makes a lot of amusement park attractions, and a lot of amusement park attractions have stories. They do. They do. And so uh, the, turning them into a, a movie yeah. isn't the weirdest thing in the world. Jungle necessarily, Cru- and Jungle Cruise is is a weird case because Jungle Cruise was meant to be a Jungle Cruise. Mm. Uh, you got on a boat, you rode around on on a track underwater, mm. and uh, there were animatronics sort of in an outdoor se- setting, mm-hmm. and, and some real animals as and, well. In fact, mm-hmm. the, like they had like a real kind of old plants and animals in the area as mm. well in order to, um, you know, sort of heighten that experience. But mm. they weren't real hippos, you know? Like yeah, that, yeah. Uh, and yeah, animatronic hippos. Mm. And uh, at some point, they wrote, they rewrote the script to Jungle Cruise mm-hmm. to being sort of cynical about itself. And I don't know when that flipped. Probably only, sometime in the 1980s. I only went to the, uh, the Jungle Cruise once or twice when I was a kid, and I don't have a lot of vivid memories other than uh, a few of the animatronics stood out and mm. the, uh, the script that... Jungle Cruise is one of those rides where there's actually like a human being in front of you the whole time mm. giving you the presentation. Yeah. And they have a script. And, you know, there's a little leeway and different people do it slightly differently, but there's a lot of puns. There's well, a that, lot of And that's, that's when, I think that was like when they updated the script was they, they started to be like, oh, here's a Bengal tiger. I can weigh up to 650 pounds and leap 30 feet. And there's a snake. It can weigh up to 650 pounds and leap yeah. 30 feet. And there's a guy and he can live weigh up to 650 pounds and he can, he can, he can jump 30 feet. You know? <laughs> and yeah, then they go, you go behind a waterfall and you're supposed to be splashed and look, it's the backside of water. It's a butt joke, um, which they make in the movie I've as still, well. I still barely get that joke. It's like backside back, is, it, I know that people don't, backside means think, butt, but of water, yeah. who gives a shit? Yeah, I don't, I've never understood that joke. I, maybe the, maybe it's been delivered badly. I just never understood. There uh, and there are some jokes in the script about how the person giving the Jungle Cruise ride uh, is only doing this at Disneyland now because they were a failed actor, and that joke uh, spun off into a wonderful Weird Al Yankovic song. That's a good one called Skipper Dan about how uh, yeah. this this guy who is doing the Jungle Cruise ride because 
he never got a good acting gig. The the original Jungle Cruise ride was unironic. The mm-hmm. idea of the Jungle Cruise ride was a big part of what Disneyland was when it opened, which was less about selling intellectual properties. There was that too. Mickey Mouse was walking around, but it was more about trying to give people a wide variety of experiences in just one location, like a like a globe, the whole world. Yeah, and indeed, there were it was separated out into like miniature countries. Disneyland, mm-hmm. there's yeah. Adventureland and Frontierland and Tomorrowland, mm-hmm. and and so mm-hmm. the Jungle Cruise was actually this like weird. Uh, hybrid of a whole bunch of different rivers throughout the world. So you'd see animals that would never be together in the same ecosystem. And so this was directly inspired by stuff that was popular at the time. Uh, The movie, uh, The African Queen, which is about another jungle cruise Mm. where Catherine Hepburn plays a missionary who falls in love with a hard drinking sailor Mm. uh, played by Humphrey Bogart. And together Mm. they fight Germans in world war one. Yeah. Uh, Spoiler alert, that will happen in the Jungle Cruise movie. Uh, not, not the Catherine Hepburn, Humphrey Bogart part, but otherwise kind of. Um, that was a big hit. That was a huge, hugely successful, popular movie. Won an Academy Award for Humphrey Bogart. Came out two years before Jungle Cruise. You better believe they were playing off the success of that. Mm. And that, in turn, was playing off the success of decades upon decades of successful adventure sort of safari type motion pictures that showed audiences stuff from around the world. And there was always this shitty sort of, uh, sort of undercurrent of imperialism, European colonialism or or overcurrent anyway, because sometimes it was really in your face about it. And sometimes it was merely, yeah, the so fundamental implication, but and we can bring yeah. up Trader Horn here if you oh, like. God, um, one of the worst movies ever nominated for Best Picture. We covered it on our podcast. <laughs> uh, only the best yeah, review every Best Picture nominee it's, ever. It's racist. It features like real animal death on camera. Oh yeah, it's, it's horrifying. It's um, and I think and, and all of those things that are actually part alleg- of these adventure stories. Allegedly, a real person death too. Like someone who actually oh, got like, like mauled or run over by like a rhino or yeah. something. So like, ju- it's it's just offensive and cruel yeah, and, and racist uh, and sexist and it made so much money yeah and indeed jungle cruise is tapping into a lot of that colonialist stuff mm-hmm. uh, they want to have 1955 all the... uh, was a very white time mm-hmm. uh the the rumors that disneyland did not accept black people into the park are not true mm-hmm. um that that was a rumor that was spread uh, you know, sort of spreading around for a while mm-hmm. um but there are a lot of racist elements to the Jungle Cruise ride yeah. that have now have since been removed. Yeah. But I feel like this new film, uh, which is directed by uh, Jaume Coyetsera, Coyetsera. Yeah, I always heard Jean Coyetsera, but I actually don't. Okay. Uh, and who is who is mostly a director of horror movies and thrillers? He did the House of Wax remake. He did that like couple a couple of Liam Neeson thrillers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and. I feel like this, along with a lot of the other Disney remakes, is an attempt to sort of re-up the brand, but remove the the racist or problematic elements. Mm-hmm. We want to be uh, as pulpy as we possibly can. We want to evoke the adventure stories of the 30s and 40s and 50s, even though this takes place in World War One. That's the vibe that we're going for cinematically. But um, we want none of the shitty subtext if we can avoid it. Yeah. And... Mostly they succeed. There's always going to be some shitty stuff. There's still an there. Italian stereotype, but yeah. uh, but but at least he's played by a guy named Giamatti. So um, yeah. 
Yeah, uh, you you look at like the remake of Dumbo. That's actually one of the remakes I, I kind of like, uh, just because there's some weird subversive things they, in it. They did. Um, they didn't just do Dumbo again. Yeah. They did something interesting. They did something Kudos new in it. For that. Uh, yeah. But you know, Dumbo has a racist portion in it with some yeah. racist crow characters that are based on racist caricatures. So let's redo Dumbo. We can still have Dumbo. Mm. The name Dumbo can still be healthily associated with Disney, but now it's not racist anymore. And I feel mm-hmm. like that's what they're doing with a lot of these new things. We can still have the jungle cruise ride but now it's not racist anymore exactly uh and so yeah now we have uh, a film that is very 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 heavily borrowing from pirates of the caribbean the curse of black pearl in terms of tone and setting and mood it's basically it's it's the okay so the jungle cruise movie stars uh emily blunt always awesome Mm. love emily blunt uh she plays uh a british uh explorer in the 1910s, I guess it's 1910s. Around World War One, yeah, so yeah, yeah, like 1918, around somewhere there. around there. Um, and uh, she believes that she has found a clue to a magical tree that is essentially uh, the fountain of youth. It will mm. cure any disease, extend your lifespan. It could change medicine as we know it, and who knows, maybe stem the tide of the war. So her and her brother, played by Jack Whitehall, Jack Whitehall, right? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, they travel. They they steal this stuff, and it turns out Jesse Plemons plays the youngest son of Kaiser Wilhelm, and he's like after the f- them, fictional and, son of Kaiser Wilhelm. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so they they abscond. They steal mm. stuff from an adventuring society, and they mm. abscond to the Amazon, where Dwayne Johnson mm. has been making oh, a living. Excuse me. He was based on a real character. Who Jack Whitehall? Uh, no. Um, Prince Joachim. Okay, there you yeah. go. Yeah. Uh, they uh, uh, they've gone to the Amazon and they need a guide, and it's sure enough, uh, Dwayne Johnson is a riverboat captain who has been giving a fake bullshitty tourist trip, not in, mm. entirely unlike the Jungle Cruise ride, uh, and is basically in dire financial straits and owes a lot mm-hmm. of money to Paul Giamatti, so he'll do anything, and so he agrees he's actually to take a, them to and, this magical tree. And even though he's been giving these these BS tours, yeah, he's actually an experienced riverboat yeah. captain. It's, it's, how to... it's actually a lot like um, uh, Alan Quatermain, who mm. in... Um, uh, what is it? It's uh, King Solomon's Mines. Mm. Like, he's an experienced... He knows everything he needs to know about how to survive uh, in the wilds, but he's making a living just taking shitty rich people to shoot elephants mm. and uh well it's kind of a shitty story in a lot of ways but in any case <laughs> but the point is he's he's not he's not trying very hard right yeah. now and so he's gonna end up on a on a adventure with emily blunt and wouldn't you know it they're gonna bicker they're gonna bicker in in a light-hearted way and they're going to reveal a lot of romantic chemistry mm. and emily blunt is she can have she could have chemistry with a tree stump. Like she, yeah. she is one of those kinds of actresses yeah, and she's just great. And Dwayne Johnson is like, even when his movies suck, you like him anyway. Uh, yeah, he was in a movie very similar. What to a great called, movie star quality. That yeah. Is. He was in a movie a lot like this called journey to the mysterious Island, uh, mm-hmm. with journey to the number two. Um, yeah. utterly forgettable uh, yeah. except Dwayne Johnson's good. In it. He's, he's great. He bounces a berry off of his chest toward the audience and it's in 3d. So that there's, that's a memorable <laughs> moment. Uh, 
It's difficult to describe Jungle Cruise, however, without evoking all of the movies that it's clearly yeah. knocking off. So you got uh, certainly the certainly people who made this are fans of the 1999 version of the Mummy, mm-hmm. right down which, to which in turn was inspired by Raiders of the Lost Ark. Anyway, well, of course, but I think uh, I think we're at the point now mm-hmm. where the Mummy had enough staying power that they're specifically evoking the Mummy. Right down to one of the opening like comedy bits is Emily Blunt in like a giant library on one of those. Mm-hmm. Like rolling step ladders, which is a gag yeah. right out of the mummy. They do it a little differently, but they're doing it. Yeah. Um, and the whole the young young British lady adventurer, her mm-hmm. ne'er do well kind of foppish brother, uh, mm-hmm. coming along with an experienced adventurer on a big uh, in, in a non European locale, mm-hmm. trying to find some faraway adventure, and, and they run afoul of monsters. And, and it turns out much like uh, uh, the mummy, but it, mm-hmm. a lot more like the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Uh, there are monsters afoot here. Obviously, Kaiser Wilhelm's youngest son is after them with his big submarine in the Amazon. Must have been hell trying to get it there. Uh, but but uh, the uh, uh, it's, like, it's like in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen where they have uh, the the. Uh, Captain Nemo's ship. Oh yeah, he's got uh, submarines in, in Venice. In, in, yeah, going to, through the canals in Venice. The canals are not that yeah, deep. The, the Nautilus, there you go. The, yeah. the Nautilus, is, yeah, couldn't fit in a canal in Venice, but it like no rises way. up and it's like a story high. I know it's a fun idea, yeah. it, but it's one of those things where people know how deep a canal is. Like it's not really going to work anyway. Uh, Jesse Plemons, in order to capture them, decides to awaken the cursed conquistadors. Led by Agira, played by Edgar Ramirez. Agira, who had previously evoked the wrath of God, and now they are cursed to be immortal and have superpowers that enable them to kill more people. Why did they get this curse? Because they killed people. Yeah, and I'm like, wait a minute, why would you curse somebody well, I think, to make uh, them more powerful and more deadly? And the only real downside of the curse, other than living forever, which can be a bummer after a while, is you can't leave the river area. Yeah, and I'm the, like, that's where you want them to leave. They <laughs> killed everyone here. Why would you well, make them more powerful and force them to I, stay I think, and make them mad at you? I, I think the curse didn't think things out clearly. I don't think it because, did. Because uh, it, it turns Aguirre and his, his conquistador buddies into, like, monsters that are made up of things in the jungle. So like Aguirre himself is like is made of snakes. One guy's made of bees. I like the bee guy. Um, <laughs> the bee guy stands out. Yeah. Cause, the cause bee he's, guy is cause, delicious. He, Cause he's like eating his own honey. He's like, Ooh, mm. I'm made of honey. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, one guy's like sort of like a tree man. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, I think that that was supposed to be their curse. It's like, you're just part of the jungle now. And it's like, Oh, but now I, if I can't die and I have like snake powers, no, no, you don't have snake powers. You're snakes. Yeah, but I can, like, kill people. Oh, shit, we didn't think of that. Really Uh, didn't think this through at all. Uh, So, yeah, maybe the curse wasn't well thought out. Um, Everything continues incredibly predictably. Uh, They they find an underground thing. They have to put a key in a thing and turn it, and a cage opens up, and something floods, and they find treasures. and uh, and, Someone gets kidnapped, and now we gotta do a thing. You know where this is going. The Jungle Cruise is not trying to reinvent anything. There's almost... Nothing novel there, about this there's movie. There's a bloody-minded insistence on not reinventing anything. The o- there's only two things that I think are even remotely noteworthy about this movie. I mean, and I will say this. It's not a hard watch. Okay? The, the, cast, oh, is, gosh, the it, cast is fun. It goes down the super event- smooth. It just has no flavor. It's just, it's just completely hollow. And there's only two things about it that I was like, oh, that's kind of neat. Or at least interesting. Uh, one is that Jack Whitehall's character actually does have a coming out scene 
mm. which is played straight. Yeah. I, I, played straight. Weird way uh, to put yeah. it. Sorry, I didn't mean that. Weird, but like strange wording. But, but, right. but yeah, but it's it's not played. For, it's not played for laughs. It's not like some weird wild moment. It's actually just very sincere. He's explaining to Dwayne Johnson, you know what his life has been like. Mm. And he says, you know, I'm the oldest son of a wealthy family and they wanted me to marry. And I said, I can't, I don't love women. Mm. And that's that. And my sister is the only one who stayed by me. And that's why I'm going to be with her no matter what she does, even though I'm completely ill suited for this adventure. And I'm watching the scene and I'm like, you know what? Kudos. That's recently well handled. Five minutes later, there's a scene where, um, something bad's happened to Dwayne Johnson. And every time Jack Whitehall suggests he helps, they turn it into a gay innuendo joke. Yeah, boy, does that undermine all of the goodwill? A, a, a little bit, a, a little bit of gay panic thrown in to, to balance out the, the anything progressive that Disney might possibly what the do. Fuck Disney! Uh, Why even do that? You don't need any they're, of that. They're they're they they're so afraid of putting yeah. uh, gay characters like in the four. I mm-hmm. mean, why wasn't the Rock gay? Just make him gay, please. Just I do say, it. I'll I don't, say this: I don't think uh, he and Emily Blunt are funny together. I never picked up romance from him. I picked up good friends. Yeah, that's yeah. the vibe I got. I never got that they were gonna so I, like I, end I, up make, making out. I, I got yeah, that they're I, gonna I like be with you. I, I had yeah. you know my husband died, and I've been yeah. heartbroken ever since. So, yeah, yeah, like yeah, that I, I buy. Like yeah. anyway, but the other thing that that stood out for me, and for the life of me, I cannot figure out why this is in the film. Hmm. Why is the score partially and directly derived from Metallica's Nothing Else Matters? <laughs> That's the first thing in the movie. You hear the violence. And I'm like, wait a minute. Why is Metallica in this? Well, and it, it was, turns out, and I've, I've read the lyrics to the song, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to think out, like, because... I, I could sing it for you. I no, love that a, song. It's a classic yeah. song. Like, that's that's the, that's top flight Metallica right there. But, like, it has nothing to do with the movie. It has nothing thematically to do with the movie. In fact, the first time we hear it, we're hearing backstory, which incredibly matters. It's really important, actually, to the whole movie. It's cool sounding because it's an amazing song but what's the point of that what were you getting at <laughs> i'm so confused by it I, I heard an interview with james hetfield of metallica and he was singing nothing else matters at a concert and you noticed like couples slow dancing to it <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and and he said i'm sorry i thought we were at a fucking metallica show <laughs> it's like there's no slow dance. like you wanted to stop and say no slow dancing <laughs> Well, also, again... This is actually kind of a dour, depressing song, nothing, like all Metallica songs. Yeah, but, but that yeah. would be like slow dancing to Unforgiven. Yeah. Or Unforgiven 2. Or Unforgiven 3. Oh. Unforgiven 3 is pretty good. It's okay. <laughs> Unforgiven's a world downhill from the first one, if you ask me. Death Magnetic's a pretty good record. It's, I'm not saying it's a bad record, I'm just saying it's not as good as James Hetfield should have been in this movie. That would be cool. Why not? Uh, would oh, have made and, more and sense. There's, there's, a, yeah, there's also a, a, a really strange conceit that... Uh, we, we mentioned the conquistador who's made of bees. Oh, yeah. Uh, he can send bees. Like, yeah, evidently those bees, like, are agents of his. Yeah. And there's some really baffling scenes, because they're not really fully explained. Yeah. Of Jesse Plemons communicating with a bee. Yeah. Like he's talking to it and the bee's crawling around on a map showing yeah, like, him where to go. Yeah, like, go here. Yeah. And then there's, like, a later bit where Jesse Plemons, like has to kill the bees so the bees won't know he's planning to, like, betray the conquistadors. And I'm like, okay, for a moment you're interesting here. Yeah. Because <laughs> this is well, this is admittedly of, a scene I have not seen yeah. before. Jesse Plemons arguing in, with bees. Yeah. Um, I just like saying bees. 
<laughs> my, it's my favorite wanna, card in Cards Against Humanity. It's just dot dot dot. Well, I, bees. You gotta want to be a beekeeper. I want. I want to. I want to keep, keep bees. bees. I want to keep them so they won't get away. <laughs> I like my coffee. Like I like my women. Covered in bees. Uh, classic Eddie. Classic Eddie. Eddie is our bed. Yeah. It it is a totally amenable, very friendly. Mm-hmm totally inoffensive adventure film good for the family i just wish it had done something something Anything. interesting something new uh, a con a single concept that i could have gotten mm-hmm. along with uh it, it there's, is there's, there's, nof- there's... nothing but it, the things it's derived from and mm-hmm. it is derived from fun things and it is itself fun but I'm not interested. There's it's, a, it's not grabbing me in any sort of any sort of new way. There, there's an old uh, uh, saying I've heard many, many a time, which is that audiences don't want something new; they want something they want old be, in a slightly new way. Yeah, they want to be su- surprised in the same way every time. Is yeah, the, the way I've heard. Uh, this is something old, but okay. They want to be surprised in a new way, uh, in the same way. Uh, this is being surprised. This is being not surprised in the same way. You, mm. I, you, you completely messed up my whole metaphor here. I'm terribly sorry. My point is, is that. We want the same old thing, but just slightly different, just slightly tweaked. Mm. The well, only wanna... thing different about this really is that it's in the Amazon instead of a pirate ship or instead mm. of the Egyptian desert. Like, it's really bringing nothing new to the table. And this is going to be someone's first adventure film. And for that person, for that kid or or just someone who wasn't really interested in the genre... And they're going to see this, and they're going to find it perfectly charming, and they're going to think we're being too harsh on it. For you, it's probably a C plus mm. because this is evoking the kind of spirit of adventure, avoiding as much offensiveness as possible. They don't really deal with a lot of the subtext here. I mean, we've got like these like conquistadors who defiled the land, and now they've been cursed forever, and they to be part of the land. Yeah, and they don't really take that to any meaningful conclusion. It's just sort of a vague idea in the background. They're, they're you can vil- cut the magic conquistadors out, and you'd have the same movie. There's a lot of, yeah, you know? there's this... You can and pat, justify also, Jesse Plemons. Yeah, I was fine. about to say, they're also secondary villains. Yeah. So is this going to be about World War One or the conquistadors? They don't draw, even though they're kind of working for the same goal, they don't draw any kind of like thematic parallel between the two of them. Like, I would not be surprised if the magic conquistadors were mm-hmm studio note they had nothing magical in the movie except maybe the tree at the end and then they were just like we need we need monsters yeah we We need we 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 cut the werewolves out of the lone ranger and we regret it so yeah um, yeah this is like the version of the lone ranger that worked yeah. Uh, this works. This is a heck of a lot better than the Lone Ranger, but you know, yeah. well, get, yeah, get, getting hit by a two by four is better than the Lone Ranger. Uh, <laughs> Ouch. Jesus. Sorry, it's I, 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 I stoop to uh, to extremes occasionally. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's 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 an easy watch, but yeah, it it does feel like a studio monster, and it's yeah. difficult to see past this as sort of a cleansing exercise for the company rather yeah. than them trying to make sort of a good adventure yeah. movie. Th- this feels like Disney trying to save face and mm. trying to make a quick, inoffensive buck, which honestly, the Disney has done way worse things. Mm. Uh, but I was just kind of singularly unimpressed by mm. it, and so ultimately, I find it so forgettable it's not really worth recommending like i might give it a c but i haven't decided um, yet yeah i'm i'm, I'm yeah. still still sitting on it's like this is well. hovering well, around c minus territory not because it's awful but because it's just so generic uh but we'll see i will yeah. we'll decide how kind i feel at the end of the podcast let's move on and let's talk about a couple other big movies that well, i didn't get to see okay unfortunately i will catch up to these uh, but let's talk about, speaking of uh, uh, Disney films, uh, David Lowry had previously directed the very good remake of Pete's Dragon. 
which had uh, very uh, little to do with the original. It just turned into yeah. its own thing. Uh, I, I like everything about Pete's Dragon where the dragon's not involved. Mm. Like, I think the human story in that is really well done. There's, a lot of good stuff There's in the movie. sort of like a wild child mm-hmm. character who moves in and like starts to rediscover humanity, but mm. also has an invisible dragon. Yeah. And, and then it becomes like this big chase with the dragon and the dragon's strapped to a truck and stuff. And that stuff's not interesting I to me. I kind of wish they'd kept the uh, dragon in the realm of plausible deniability where maybe there's a dragon and maybe there isn't. Like, yeah. That would have been kind of a stronger way to handle it. But even so, I think that movie is very well made. And I and I think David Lowry is a very talented filmmaker. Yeah, I, I, I was very fond of his The Old Man and the Gun. I missed that one. Uh, yeah, yeah, which was about uh, an, an aging bank thief played by Robert Redford. It was supposed to be Robert Redford's like final film, final leading mm-hmm. role. I think it has, is his final leading role. It's his final leading um, role. He had one more cameo in Avengers mm-hmm. Endgame, which honestly, if you're gonna if you're gonna make one more like studio movie, you might as well make literally the biggest movie of all yeah, time. Exactly. Like, yeah. And Robert to, Redford's in the biggest movie of all hard, time. It's hard to be mad uh, at him for it. It's like, go for it. Yeah, Robert, uh, like, David Lowry so also did one of my favorite films of 2018, or it was 2017, uh, A Ghost Story. Yeah. Which was uh, this exploration of well, a, a ghost. And it, it just sort of told an idea of a haunting and what a ghost is haunting for and what it happens mm. when the ghost just sort of stays in one spot kind of indefinitely and how time loses meaning. And, uh, mm. you know, the, the ghost, it looks like a, a, a costume. It's like a guy ghost in a white sheet. It looks white like sheet Charlie Brown Halloween. Yeah. Ghost. Like yeah. on a sheet with white eye holes, but it's like really kind of ethereal and contemplative. Yeah. Uh, you made a point about a ghost story when we reviewed it back then that it felt a little too like college studenty because there's yeah. a, a scene in that movie where the ghost like the the ghost is haunting his widow the, a guy yeah. dies and he's haunting his widow and then the widow moves out like the ghost loses track of time mm. and we don't the know ghost is trapped is, yeah. in this geographic location exactly and, uh, so. and so new families move in it's able to haunt a little bit but a new family moves out and then there's this uh, scene where some college kids move into the house and they start talking about death in one scene they're having mm. a party and the ghost is there listening and the film is essentially just sort of speaking its thesis aloud in that yeah. scene, but in a really inarticulate sort of way. I find the thesis uh, to be very much mm. like I took one philosophy class yeah. in college and now I feel yeah. smart. Um, yeah. I, I feel like there was sort of a function to that, but now that's a little bit sour. And I think I agree with you because now I've seen the green Knight, Ooh. and, uh, and I feel like the Green Knight is about a guy who like read Chaucer for the first time is like, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do a movie of that. <laughs> And I'm not going to study much, but I found some really deep things. Now, it's yeah. not based on Chaucer the Green no. Knight. It's actually based on a uh, medieval anonymous poem called Sir Gawain of the Green Knight, yeah. which which I've read. I read that in um, high school. Yeah. I read, um, actually, I think I read it before high school, because mm. I was actually fond. There were two movies based on this. Yeah, and I haven't this. seen the movies, there, but I've, I've read there, the, the J.R.R. Tolkien translation from the Middle English. Yeah. Uh, and which is... Um, Anyway, tell, but tell them about the films. Oh yeah, real, seen the films. real, real fast. I want to make sure I get. The, I want to make sure they get the names right because mm. one of them is kind of weirdly named. Uh, one of them is called Sword of the Valiant, and it stars uh, Miles O'Keefe. How much Keefe is in this movie? <laughs> Miles of it. Yep, and uh, the other one uh, is. Uh, hold on, I can't seem to. IMDb, you failed me again. Well, I, I know uh, Sean Connery plays the Green Knight in another version. I think it's called Gawain and the Green Knight. Uh, there's, there's um, Sean Connery mm. uh, is in. Go, okay, Gawain and the Green Knight was 1973. Okay, uh, that one actually starred Nigel Green as the Green Knight. Sort of the Valiant is the one that stars Sean, oh, Sean Connery. Connery. Okay, uh, these movies were both directed and adapted, or co-adapted in one case, by a director named Stephen Weeks. Mm. He did two Green Knight movies within about a decade of each mm. other. 
weird. I saw them both when I was young. Mm. I found them a little interchangeable, but I have not revisited them much since. I think I saw Sword of the Valiant again like 15 uh, and, years and, ago. And here's a weird coincidence. Stephen Weeks also directed a film called Ghost Story. Fuck you. It's really, yeah, just by complete coincidence. Stephen Weeks did Gowan in the Green Knight in 1973 and a film called Ghost Story in 1974. Okay, I'm looking uh, forward to uh, David Lowery's The Bengal Lancers. I monster. He'll do it too. And uh, Scars. Those are the only other like feature films. <laughs> well, I guess Scars is a TV documentary, but yeah. whatever. Uh, but yeah, David Lowry has now taken a crack at this anonymous poem and has made uh, Dev Patel plays Sir Gawain, and it takes place at the end of King Arthur's life. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a Christmas party in the movie. Mm-hmm. In the poem, it's a New Year's party. Uh, yeah, and they uh, and while they're sort of sitting around, and uh, a very aged, kind of sickly uh, King Arthur who has no nobility at all to him, yeah. sort of like sh- this Your shrinking character. Yeah. Uh, is saying, uh, you're you're one of my most valiant knights and maybe you'll be, like, my successor. What do you think of that, Sir Gawain? And Dev Patel's like, yeah, I can, like, m- maybe move my girlfriend in. She's mm-hmm. a sex worker down the street. She's played by Alicia Vikander. Isn't that great? And just then, uh, the Green Knight breaks in. And the Green Knight is uh, essentially an Ent from Lord of the Rings. So he's an actual, it's, like, in, in like this, vegetation In, in this version thing, yeah, he's like, a, like has bark. Swamp thing. He, yeah. he looks like he's wearing a rubber mask. The, the knight looks terrible. Oh, no. uh, but yeah, this guy in this rubber mask, he's this gigantic, massive thing, and he says, hey, you're noble knights. Uh, game. If you strike me, uh, you can strike me as hard as you want. You can even, you know, cut off my head. But in one year's time, you have to come to my church way out in the woods and I will repay whatever strike you give me. And Sir Gawain says, well, I'm I'm kind of a, a cocky blowhard. Cuts his head off. Yeah. And then the knight picks his head up, still alive, and th- th- puts his head back on and says, see you in a year. And, yeah. And Sir Gawain's like, oh, shit. And uh, <laughs> fast forward a year, he uh, Sir Gawain gets on his horse and says, well, I have to repay my debt. And treks out into the woods where he has a, a series of misadventures. At first, he finds uh, a scavenger played by Barry Keoghan. Oh, okay. Uh, I love Barry Keoghan. I, I love Barry, Barry Keoghan. Really and and he, has, he has a really good choice in films. He chooses mm-hmm. really interesting projects. Yeah. Uh, and He's amazing in Killing of a Sacred Deer. Yeah. Like, should have been, should have been Oscar nominated for yeah, that. He's yeah. fantastic in that film. Uh, I, I think that film was a little too odd for a lot of audiences well, because it's a, it's a horror movie. It's a horror movie, and, I think movie it was and there's like, like this, up like an Oscar movie, but it's yeah. a horror movie. It, it's a horror movie. It's got a, like a curse, but it never uses the word curse. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. It's, so fucking creepy, it's like a, the, the the characters start getting like this disease and the sickness, but it it deliberately has never explained what the disease is or what it or like how, how they got it or yeah. how it spread. It's uh, so yeah. fucking scary. I mean, it's, it actually scares the crap out of me. It's just about Barry Keoghan just shows up and says, you, your family's going to get sick. And and that and it, lo, it yeah. happens. Yeah. Um, really creepy. Yeah. Uh, and he ends up getting mugged. They, uh, Barry Keoghan and some compatriots take his stuff because they're scavengers. Mm. Uh, and there's this uh, moment in the movie where uh, Dev Patel is like tied up on the ground and uh, he's giving this kind of enigmatic performance where he's really kind of afraid of the world around him. You can tell he's not he's not portraying like a noble cliche. He's playing mm-hmm. sort of this this kind of pathetic character. They're trying to mm-hmm. subvert a lot of yeah, the nobility. His, his ego yeah. came from a very fragile place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and yeah, he's 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 driven by very base desires. There's nothing noble about this knight character. And he, when he's all trussed up, uh, there's this 360 and we uh, of the woods. We just sort of very slowly look around the woods and we pan back to him and he he's dead. He's a skeleton. And then oh. we pan around again, and he's okay again. And uh, so what a twist! Yeah, it's it's uh, this. 
David Lowry is trying to sort of add a lot of these stylistic flourishes that are meant to get us to think very deeply about the depth the uh, death of the night and how nobility is sort of this facade and there aren't really these noble characters in this world, but it's not about the world decaying. It's actually this really simple rendition of, uh, of, of trying to take down uh, ideas of knight errantry. Right. Um, and I don't think there's much to this film beyond that. They're clearly going for a lot of like ghost stories. They're evoking a lot of uh, criticisms that have been made about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight over the years. Um, there's also a, a an episode where he stops at a house that's being haunted, and uh, this woman says, "My head was cut off. Uh, you need to go out into the sump and find my skull and return it to me," even though she's still Maybe. like completely complete. Uh, intact and it's at night and it's really spooky uh there's a portion i did really love where he's just sort of riding through a valley and we see over the crest of a mountain a giant's hand sort of pushing down it hasn't Mm. been established that there are giants in this universe yet so Mm -hmm. it's this this weird kind of nightmarish imagery and he rides up to the crest and we see these like 200 foot tall giants just sort of strolling along speaking in giant language which is this weird kind of gibberish uh, that part's really kind of dreamy and, and cool, but mm. for the most part, I think David Lowry is just sort of flexing his style. Like I said, it feels like he's read medieval poetry for the first time, and it only has taken really surface interpretations of this material. I'm, I'm, I, again, I didn't mm. see this. I will see this because I'm mm. interested. I think Dev Patel is one of the most. Mm. I think he's one of the most interesting leading men we have right now. Um, I think David Lowry has a lot of. More potential than mm. anything. I, I think he's made some good movies, but nothing that I think is truly epic yet. Um, and in its quality, yeah. but really good. Um, what you're saying reminds me, in a, in a weird way, of uh, some of my critiques of Zack Snyder, mm. which is that he's incredible with his imagery. He knows how to paint, like you know, an epic vista or a gigantic, larger than life image. But he seems so interested in tearing things down, he forgets to build them up first and actually mm. show that he believes in the material, which is why I think, you know, his director's cut of Justice League works really well okay. because it's actually kind of genuine for a lot mm. of it. But like his Batman v Superman doesn't because it's just trying to destroy something he never made. Yeah. You know, like, well, like, we have to like, you know, really think about what Superman is. We don't have Superman yet. You gave us his origin and his origin was like really weird and bleak and depressing and, and like questioning yeah, we, of itself. We never had Superman to tear down. Yeah. So it doesn't it work. A, and the same thing with Batman. Yeah, we had less of Batman. Like, so like you have to like, if you're going to break something, you have yeah. to prove you can do it. You yeah. know, I, I feel like David Lowry uh, is, he's using this ancient poem, um, which is very evocative and he's get, putting in a lot of evocative and, imagery. Yeah. And it's great. Uh, and it's short too. There's no excuse not to read it. Like it's really good. Yeah. Go, yeah. go, go and grab like it. You, there's, you can, that you can find a, like yeah. a $5 paperback of, yeah. of Tolkien's translation yeah. in, in any bookstop. Yeah. In any bookshop. There are bookshops still. Still. In my brain. No, there uh, are. They're around. Yeah. Not many, but thank God there are still some <laughs> There's still, still, still some bookstores. Yeah. Um, I feel like he's using the poem as a jumping off point to explore his own film passions mm. rather than really delve into the material. And I feel like David Lowry, while possessed of a style, you can recognize a David Lowry film, isn't a strong enough a stylist to justify that treatment of the material. Mm, I where feel like he's, he's not like Tim Burton where like, Oh, Tim Burton's doing yeah, this story. Or, like, Oh, I want to see what Tim Burton would do with that. You know? Exactly. Like Tim Burton 
a lot of Tim Burton stories are incredibly shallow or you know, mm. he deals with scripts sometimes that really aren't very good. But we go in because we like the visuals that Tim Burton is able to deliver and yeah. the, the weird music and performances and the casting that he, he puts together. Uh, I feel like David Lowry doesn't quite, he hasn't reached that high yet. Like this mm. is his, his strongest swing, but it feels like a lesser Wes Anderson type attempt where he's mm. setting things up in a really, really stylish way for the sake of the style. And mm. the fact that he's drawing on, uh, a, an ancient poem, a medieval poem, is inviting... With artistic yeah, staying power yeah, beyond that which almost it's, any it's filmmaker in, now could even claim It's inviting us to, yeah. to look into something deeper, but I don't think he did that. And uh, mm. this, this, this film is one of the best reviewed of the year, I think. I, I've heard people gush about this. People who have, like, degrees in medieval literature are really losing their minds over The Green Knight. I've merely read it. I don't have a degree in medieval, medieval literature. I've read Le Morte d'Arthur and some other Arthurian stories, but I'm no expert. Yeah. And so maybe it's my own ignorance. Maybe okay. there is something going on here far more complex that if I were to study a lot more, I would be mm. latching onto. But I feel like there's a, like a surface artificiality to something like The Green Knight. Uh, you would think that this weird psychedelic art house A24 uh, released mm. film about a medieval poem would be right up my alley. It sounds like this, it was delivered directly is, to your address. This is yeah. kind of my jam, and, and I'm really upset that they kind of Look. kind of whiffed it. It doesn't. It can be on my level and still yeah. not appeal just, to just me. Just because something is made for you doesn't mm. mean it was made well. It would yeah. be like if someone's like... Hey, I made you some cupcakes, and like you're like, oh, you, oh, that's nice, but there's no sugar in these, mm. so they don't taste good, you yeah, know? And like uh, that's that's fun. I appreciate the gesture. Mm. You made them for me. It yeah. didn't come out right. I, I, you know? I've, I've brought up this before. I'm, I'm into like sort of weird, quirky music, and I was uh, shopping at a record store, and I found uh, one of those sort of second wave swing bands. They did like uh, you know in the the vein of the Squirrel Nut Zippers. Mm. Yeah, uh, and they and they did a this extended uh, klezmer song like this uh, oh. this polka that told the life story of Tracy Lords and I thought wow. and it's like okay that's a hell of a song a, 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 an epic klezmer polka about the life of Tracy Lords that's that's for me that's something I would dig it's <laughs> a very distinct so I, so I, I snatched it yeah. off the shelf I took it to a listening station and you know what they did it they did a bad one oh. it's not a very good song good idea good form good topic you did everything right but you didn't pull it off. And yeah. I feel the same way about the green Knight. Great idea. Good topic. Good stopping. Starting off point. Yeah. Dev Patel. Great casting. Mm-hmm. He's very good. I like Alicia Vikander. Yeah. But y- you didn't land it. You didn't, you didn't pull it off. I'm, I'm going to make everyone a deal right now. If you can find, and it has to be dated like before this episode comes out, mm. you can find any review of the green Knight that compares it to Klezmer music. <laughs> other than this one. <laughs> I will give you a, a huge okay. shout out on a future episode of the show, but it has to be post dated before this. You can't, and this one does not count. <laughs> be before this. As someone else compared this to Klezmer. Yeah. Seriously, so, I, uh, you, I, I owe you a Coke. 
So, so ultimately, the Green Knight was, and I don't like to use this word because this implies that I had a lot of uh, expectations, but it was disappointing. Sure. It, it comes out swinging very hard and has all well, of you, this uh, wonderful style in it, but it's, 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 it's not getting at anything deep enough to make it interesting. I, I recognize a lot of what it did do. Mm-hmm. It is deconstructing heroism. It is deconstructing his relationship with his mother, who might have summoned the Green Knight. There's this weird sort of psychedelic okay. sequence at the beginning. Uh, I appreciate that the Green Knight is sort of a, a dour figure, a force of nature, and it is about man's mm-hmm. arrogance versus the forces of nature. I see all of that. I'm simply not impressed with the way they told me. You know, you you were like, you used the word disappointing and then mm-hmm. you backed off a bit. And I think you and I both agree that, um, you know, anticipation isn't a good thing mm-hmm. for uh, a critical mindset. Yeah. Uh, it's perfectly natural. Everyone looks forward to things. Everyone's like, ooh, there's a new film from a director I like. Mm. I hope it's good. But building it up too much in your head can lead to disappointment or worse, uh, you know, trying to convince yourself it's something that it's not. Sometimes it really is great, but sometimes it's like, oh, that wasn't great, but you try to convince yourself that it's great and end up apologizing for it more than you have to. Mm. Or maybe it's bad and you can't take it and it hurts. So... Um, but I think there's a difference between that and acknowledging that when you're adapting a classic text, it comes with baggage. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like if you if David Lowry had done Hamlet and he had done a bad Hamlet, that would be extra disappointing mm-hmm. because it's Hamlet. Because the know? world is familiar with Hamlet. Yeah, and the world is to one extent or another. No, mm-hmm. not everyone's read it, but The Green Knight is an enduring text. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so, yeah, it's got some built-in stuff. So... Anyway, sounds like a bummer. Tell me about Stillwater. Uh, Stillwater is the latest film from Tom McCarthy. Uh, Tom McCarthy, uh, he mostly known as an actor, but he's also directed some notable films. Including Spotlight, uh, which won yeah. Best Picture. He did Spotlight. Uh, he did The Visitor, which I'm very fond of. That's he did, a very, very He did good The film. Station Agent, which I'm very fond of. I didn't see his film Win-Win. I didn't see the Adam Sandler film he did, The Cobbler. The Cobbler is yeah. one of the weirdest yeah. fucking things it's but uh, adam's real fast mm-hmm. in addition to directing, i think it was the same year spotlight came out actually uh the cobbler stars adam sandler as a cobbler in like a, a small borough in new york that's in the process of being gentrified and he finds out that if he uses the old-fashioned cobbling machine in his basement to repair shoes and then he puts on those shoes he becomes the person who owns those shoes right there's like some magical conceit Um, yeah and the first thing he does is he almost does something so completely shockingly unethical that you hate him forever (laughs) and then after that it tries to turn into like some weird dark man riff but it's also a comedy but it's also shockingly violent and you don't know what the fuck to do with this and it ends in a bit that like tries to set up a superhero universe and it's one of the that weirdest like, Adam Sandler movies. That sounds like excitingly misguided. Like it I, I kind of is yeah, actually. Like, 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 you, like you're actually kind of like selling me on. So on the many Adam Sandler movies are so cookie cutter. You know, they're just mm. going by a formula, and I know the formula works. No one's pretending the formula doesn't work. People like the dang things. Uh, this one does stand out as being really weird. So if you want to see a weird Adam Sandler movie with some gross stuff in it, uh, and and some interesting ideas, I suppose, too. Uh, Yeah, The Cobbler from the guy who did Spotlight. Between Win-Win, he did The Station Agent, The Visitor, Win-Win, the Adam Sandler superhero shoe movie, then Spotlight. (laughs) 
<laughs> Interesting choices. Anyway, and, moving and, on. And I do love Spotlight. Uh, Tom McCarthy is also um, a, a Hollywood screenwriter for hire, and he's done mm. like Disney movies. Uh, one of his film, the films he he wrote and directed was like Timmy Failure, mm. uh, which was you know a, a kids film. Yeah, he wrote he the or co-wrote the, the, the screenplay um, for Christopher Robin, which is for, uh, so he, generic. He did some punch up on on a film I haven't seen called The Nutcracker in the Four Realms, which is one of really Disney's bigger thing. bombs. It looks so weird. Uh, oh, he did Million Dollar Arm, which is actually mm. a pretty cute film. Yeah, uh, and he worked on the screenplay for yeah, Up. Million Dollar Arm is like the, the the best movie Fred McMurray didn't have a chance to be in. Kind of, yeah. Um, yeah, and now he's doing Stillwater, which uh, is about a blue-collar working-class dude from the South, played by Matt Damon. Mm. Uh, Matt Damon's in the news right now because of some things he said. Uh, he uh, pretty bad. <laughs> not the he's, worst thing ever, he's, but pretty. Well, like, he just, he's he, like, he's he, not going to jail or anything, no, but he just, he just, he's, he's being shitty. He, he just revealed that he's... Yeah, it is now and has always been just sort of like a, a Boston meathead kind of guy. Uh, yeah. yeah, here he, and like it's bad. I don't want to underplay good, it, but he's, I'm saying he's not going to he's not going to go to good good screenwriter and good actor. Yeah. Besides, but yeah, yeah. And also said said some pretty uh, pretty bad things. Um, yeah, he plays a fellow who uh, he's working out uh, just sort of getting jobs as he can. He's you know a lot of construction jobs. He does clean up when the houses are, are uh, demolished. And uh, at the beginning of the movie, he goes off to Marseille in France, where his daughter, played by Abigail Breslin, has been in prison for the last number of years. She was imprisoned for murdering her roommate. Uh, this was a story, and she has been passing notes to him to take to uh, local investigators uh, to reopen her case. She mm-hmm. heard something in prison and feels like she can be exonerated. She mm-hmm. claims she did not, she didn't do it, and... Uh, Matt Damon reads the note, like has somebody translate the note because it's written in French. And she essentially says in the note, uh, do this yourself. Don't trust my dad just because he's a massive fuck up. He can never do anything right. And we actually get to see this really interesting uh, depiction of the Matt Damon character because it's about a guy who actually really can't do anything really right trying to make good. Mm. And yeah, like he doesn't really have the mental um, wherewithal to take care of something like this, but he actually begins to try and he begins to uh, investigate. He ends up falling in uh, with a local uh, played by uh, an actress named Deanna Dunigan. Okay. Oh no, Deanna Dunigan plays the, the grandmother, excuse me. Um, for Camille. Um... Hmm. Is it Camille uh, Cotton plays Cam- Virginie? Camille Virginie, yeah, yeah Camille yeah. C- Camille Cotton. Uh, he ends up falling in with her. He just sort of runs into her and ends up spending more and more time with her. And they end up sort of living together and then bonding and then falling in love. It's actually this sort of long form story about how he's trying to help his daughter and ends up falling in love with a local. Uh, and things continue apace, and eventually he. Uh, makes a really, really, really bad decision two way, two-thirds of the way through the movie, which end up uh, kind of lousing everything up for everybody. Uh, it's a really interestingly told character drama, and I think Matt Damon gives a really great performance as this kind of meathead guy, this guy, this American guy named Bill, who is trying to figure out Europe. It's it's a culture clash movie. Uh, what, what does this... Uh, average American man do when he's living in Marseille and what sort of things is he, is he going to pick up on? How do the French think of this guy? And in fact, he's asked point blank at one point, did you vote for Trump? And uh, he says, no, I didn't. You didn't? No, I'm a con. I was not allowed to vote. 
So it kind of skirts mm-hmm. around the fact that this guy would have if, if he had the chance. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, what happens when a Trump voter has to live abroad for a long time? And I feel like the film very sensitively handles a lot of that stuff. Um, Tom McCarthy is interested in those kinds of relationships. Mm. If you've seen The Station Agent or The Visitor, those are uh, movies about characters learning to sort of appreciate one another. And I think he's very sensitive to that uh, to that effect. I do, however, have to mention that this is inspired by a true story. Yeah, I was waiting for you to get um, to that, because this, this has become a big narrative for the film. Again, I didn't see this one. Yeah. Uh, but this film was directly inspired, but they've talked about it in interviews, mm. uh, by Amanda Knox, who was an American... Well, uh, I, and I actually didn't know the Amanda Knox story, but oh, yeah, really? she, she's an American. Oh wow! I who was this. living this in big, yeah. yeah, she was living in Italy, and she too was accused of murdering her roommate. Yeah, and had to go through a lot of horrendous legal problems. Mm-hmm. To, she was convicted uh, yeah, she of was, she was convicted of the murder, mm. and then later on, and and like this is like years later, uh, she was eventually exonerated. She mm. was completely railroaded. She was turned into this enormous tabloid centerpiece where people were like assuming that she was at the center of some wild sex scandal murder plot mm. and actually it was some other guy and they had like his bloody fingerprints and he had already been in jail at the time for doing something else and they just never pursued it because mm. this they, was a more they, exciting story well, i guess they, I don't know sure, there's but, so uh, many stories that are uh, true about uh, police who are just like they can't admit the wrong yeah. So they have to pursue so, mm. everything as far as it can possibly go. Amanda Locks' life was f- effectively destroyed. Mm. Um, and she's trying to put her life together. And now here comes Tom McCarthy making a movie that sensationalizes her life, makes it about a man. Yeah. And it, it's I and I don't know how it handles like the character I, Abigail Breslin's obviously based yeah. on Amanda Knox. This is not Amanda Knox. She's not named Amanda Knox, but it is giving the impression to people who probably the lot of people like mm. you probably vaguely yeah, remember I, I the story or don't know it very well so at I was, all and now this yeah, is going to uh, tint how they look at it yeah I, I didn't i didn't know the amanda knox story and yeah this is um it's one of those things where like it's not legally actionable like it's different enough from her story yeah, that they but, can just tell the story but, no but it's fooled. but it, it's, it's like it's primary like, colors we know well i was gonna say uh, it's like an episode of law and order where it's yeah. like very evocative of a real life crime but it's yeah. not that crime uh and as such, in terms of like the real story, it actually really does Amanda Knox a horrendous disservice okay. because of what, and I can't say what happens because this reveals yeah. the ending of the movie, but mm-hmm. the way they treat the Amanda Knox character uh, by the end of the film uh, is is kind of rewriting history in a way, in a way that's really unfair to Amanda Knox. Yeah. Uh, as a character piece, it's incredibly well done and it's incredibly well acted, but mm-hmm. it's now tainted mm. by the way it didn't really consider mm. how it was treating a real person. I think it mm. was treating it. I think it was treating Amanda Knox, like something intellectual, like a media mm-hmm. thing that happened rather than a human being and that they could have reached out to. And it's not like some historical mm. figure yeah. where like there's you, you, creative license isn't going to hurt their lives or anything. Yeah, it's, it, it, would be, it would be like uh, if you made, a movie about two Olympic skaters and one murdered the other, and you never talked to Tanya Harding about any of that. Yeah, or uh, Nancy Kerrigan, or, or Nancy, yeah, yeah, yeah or whoever. Nancy Kerrigan, or, or anybody who was actually involved. Yeah, and everyone would so, know uh, what you were getting at, and everyone yeah. would so know 
there's it, no this mistaking is, it. But. This has un- unfortunately kind of weighted the film against itself, yeah. uh, if, even though it's uh, a really thoughtful, well-paced, well-acted story mm-hmm. about American culture and French culture sort of blending together a little bit. Yeah. That the Amanda Knox character is kind of written out of it for a lot of the story of... Uh, and now that I, I'm now calling her the Amanda Knox character yeah. is kind of an issue now. I, again, uh, I didn't and, see And again, this, 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 this so. is all something that came up after the fact because I didn't, I didn't know the Amanda Knox story. I'm just ignorant that way. Well, you, uh, know, you, but you now, don't now know that, everything that's ever happened yeah, and you don't, no, but, you don't really follow that kind of news. Yeah, so. so, yeah. Um, but I feel like, I feel like I just want to clarify. I haven't seen this movie. I am discussing the criticism that I've heard. Some of it from Amanda Knox herself, who again was, not just like let go. She was completely exonerated legally. Mm. Like they just flat out said you did not do but this. She was arrested. She was yeah. convicted in 2007 and wasn't yeah. exonerated until 2015. Yeah, like it's so, a, uh, a yeah. huge chunk of her life has been taken mm. up by this, and here it's coming up again, and that sucks. But I feel like what is necessary is, regardless of whether or not the movie works on its own merits, which I cannot speak, mm. it does speak to a conversation we need to to have. Um, and I know some people like are eager to leave this out of film criticism, but I think it's part of it is the importance of ethical filmmaking, Mm. which is filmmaking does not exist in a vacuum. Filmmaking connects with people. Filmmaking affects people's perception of things. And while you can't always control that, there are definitely ways that you can maximize Mm. the positive impact you're making. Even if it is about something dark or unpleasant or, Mm. or ugly. Um, And it sounds like somewhere down the line here, people kind of got, uh, yeah, well, it kind of got wrapped up in themselves. I don't know, yeah, I, I, but I can't yeah. say well, this. I wasn't there. It, it, this, it, that's the concern right now. It's it's a it's a case of they they clearly were intellectualizing Amanda Knox, and they just weren't sensitive. They weren't thinking about her. They weren't thinking about her as a person. Uh, yeah, it was it wasn't that they thought of her and wanted to like do her a disservice and tell her story differently. Mm-hmm. It was just that they weren't thinking about it, and mm-hmm. uh, and that, they just that, heard about her, and it was like, how can we make uh, this about her dad? More or less, like yeah. let's make a story about what, what would the dad go through. What would a guy, a, a dad, go through if yeah. he were in a similar situation? And, Interesting choices. And uh, it, it is a little too close to the actual Amanda Knox story that, uh, hmm. well, Amanda Knox spoke up about it. Yeah. Well, and, and as is her yeah. right. Yeah. Um, again, I haven't seen this one. I will let you know if I think it is yeah. good in spite of all that, or even if I have some other weird take that has nothing to do with anything we discussed. But yeah. uh, I haven't had a chance to yet been a rough week or two. Mm. So uh, I, I also didn't see uh, A.E. Mofay. Yeah, A.E. Mofay. Uh, which is also called, uh, or in the parenthetical, mm. This Is My Desire. Yeah, A.E. Mofay, This Is My Desire, as it's released here in the United States. Uh, this is a Nigerian film by, uh, I, I, I apologize for my pronunciation, Irie Esiri and Chuko Esiri. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just credited as Irie and Chuko. They're brothers. And... Um, this is uh, sort of a diptych. It's two stories. Mm. Uh, the first half uh, of the of this film involves a fellow named Mofe. He's played by uh, Jude Akawudike. Mm-hmm. And uh, he is... We're trying our best in the pronunciation. Yeah, I, I we're, we're sure we're doing it probably wrong, but we're trying. Yeah. Uh, and he is uh, an electrician in uh, some... some like kind of run down buildings in Lagos and he dreams of leaving Lagos. In fact, uh, this is my desire relates to the, uh, the desire to leave. They want uh, mm. the characters in this movie want to get out of their, uh, their poverty and their just their bad situation. Um, 
this character Mofei lives with his sister and her child and he is he works all of these electric boxes and there's a lot of really uh, meaningful penetrating shots of these tangled wires in these electrical boxes and they use little pieces of cardboard barely like just stuck between the wires to make sure they don't touch and short everything out. And that's a, a, a symbol that's gotten back to again and again. Uh, it was shot really beautifully on 16 millimeter film and the filmmakers have a, a really excellent knack of sort of saturating everything. So it looks really cinematic, but also infusing it with this very, a palpable kitchen sink realism. So you're really kind of there in the moment, but it still feels very movie. I've, it, I haven't seen anything that balances it quite this way yet. Mm. Um, all of a sudden, off camera, and you're not even sure it happened at first, the the sister and the daughter die. Wow. They're just out of the movie. And oh, wow. this leads uh, uh, the Mofe character uh, into this weird... Um, a bureaucratic nightmare as to how to secure all of these papers, some of which might not be real, some of which definitely are faked, in order to uh, move to uh, the United States and open up a business there. And how this bureaucratic nightmare essentially just strips him of all of his humanity to the point where he just loses all hope. Uh, then we stop his story and we move over to a character named Rosa, played by Temi Emmy Williams. And it's about her story and about how she and her, I think it's her, a relative of hers, it's her niece or her daughter, are also trying to leave. And she's a bartender, and a lot of her story involves how she needs to essentially flirt with a, a white American who's visiting Lagos. Mm. Uh, to essentially curry favor so that she can also leave the country. And there's also a plot we eventually learn for, like, her, uh, her her relative is pregnant and they are planning on selling the baby so they can leave the, leave the country as well. Wow. So that's, and uh, there and there's a couple scenes where the two characters sort of interact. And Mofei will be back uh, by the end of the movie. <laughs> Mofei will be back in The Spy Who in, Loved in Me. In Avengers Endgame. Yeah. Uh, this is a very human, very humane, but also incredibly harrowing story. It's it's uh, it's very very sad, and it it is uh, very careful about presenting desperation and poverty without it seeming at all exploitative. These mm. characters are actually very human, but they're at the end of their rope, so they're. Uh, it's sort of a constant fever pitch of emotion, but it never feels like it leaves the real world. It's never so stylized as that. It's really, really well done. Wow. Uh, uh, realism is a pretty hard thing to pull off. It's becoming a lot more easy for a lot of filmmakers because a lot of filmmakers just have smaller digital cameras. They're a lot more affordable now, mm -hmm. and they can just sort of take them down. Uh, these 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 filmmakers are um, Irie and Chuko are they clearly have a lot of talent they understand the craft and because they're shooting on film understand how to sort of like set up and lock down and frame up shots in ways that uh, make it seem 
like it's sort of like a throwback to something like Killer of Sheep, where we're just sort of living mm. with these people. We're sort yeah. of down on ground level. There's a lot of like Ozu type shots where the camera's a little bit lower. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of looking at a room for a really long time. Yeah, it's not about just uh, moving the plot forward. It's about yeah, feeling yeah. like you like, live there. Like yeah. we're in a lot of these spaces, and they're what they're yeah. capturing with all of these lockdown shots are how cramped everything is. Everything takes place in these little tiny square rooms, and everybody's standing really close together, and uh, it, it makes you feel sweaty like when you're standing. So close to all of these people. Um, yeah, I, I think these are uh, filmmakers uh, that maybe we should keep an eye out for. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of, uh, I've seen, not a lot, but I've, I've seen several um, Nigerian films recently. Um, I've sort of, 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 of all the, the films I've seen from Africa, I think I've seen the most from Nigeria. And mm-hmm. I think uh, we might be on this weird cusp of maybe a Nigerian new wave. This is Ooh. what this feels like to yeah. me. That that's something like a movement is about to start. That's it's, it's actually or maybe it already has. Yeah, maybe, yeah, and, those films and, yet. yeah. You know, we're in the United States, so maybe there's a lot more like this in Nigeria. But uh, but yeah, I, I I'm really excited to to have seen this because I feel like it's something's going to come up. That's amazing. Mm. I saw a Netflix mm. rom com. Oh my god! What? I have to review it. Mm. Give me that. Tell Wait. me about the Netflix rom-com, like yeah. falling in love or no, whatever. No, whatever there, it's no, no, no. You're, you're thinking of falling in love. Yes. Uh, which starred uh, Christina Milian. Uh, and uh, no, this is Resort to Love, which uh, stars Christina Milian. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, this is it's not from the same filmmaker, although it has a similar vibe. Falling in Love was about a woman who... Uh, Ended up acquiring like an inn in this like gorgeous, mm-hmm. you know, faraway place, and then like she's cleaning it up, and she ends up falling in Diana in love with someone, and it's very cute. Not a lot to it. Pretty mm-hmm. generic. It's very cute. Sometimes inoffensive is why we're here. <laughs> we're not here and to str- like and anything. Yeah, we're not. There's no like, oh, wow us with like, this incredible experience. Let's go on a ride. And then the ride is not exciting. It's just sort of, okay, that's a bummer. When you're looking at a low-budget, like, straight-to-Netflix romantic comedy, the bar's set a little lower. Let's mm. just be fair. The bar's a little, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not expecting Sleepless <laughs> in Seattle here. We're expecting something cute. And sure enough, that is actually what we get. I'm going to be perfectly frank. This movie is cute. Uh, Christina Million plays uh, a young woman who... Uh, not that long ago, her engagement collapsed. She was focused on her music career. Uh, her her fiancé left her to uh, get another job somewhere else. And mm-hmm. she's still working through all of that baggage. Uh, but at least her singing career is, pick, is picking up. And she's uh, a featured singer on a new album from this sort of fictional Kanye West type character. It's supposed to be this like musical legend, sells millions upon millions of records. Uh, is you know considered an eccentric, uh, and uh, she's going to at the beginning of the movie a listening party for their new album, and it's very very exciting. It's all very hush hush, you know, a surprise new album, everything. And uh, she gets there and she's super excited. This is it. This is her big moment. And then the 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 dude says, "All right, I told you last time." That anytime, if ever anyone leaked any of my music again before I wanted it to come out, there would be no more music. 
so this album will never come out. And he like smashes his laptop in front of everybody. <laughs> and it's actually like, and that gets us started off on a, a, a funny note. It's a funny, like we expected like her career's mm-hmm. not going to go great. Cause otherwise there's no movie, you know, she's got to like right. get set back and move up. It's like, we got to have that. Um, but I appreciate that this is actually going for kind of big emotions and like, Scenes that actually make an impression As mm-hmm. opposed to just We're just going to lightly glide you through this Rob Com. There's going to mm-hmm. actually be some unexpected uh, 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 Bits And mm-hmm. um, sure enough She ends up absolutely miserable And after a few months Of grieving her career And grieving the loss of her uh, uh, Relationship She agrees to take a gig A temporary gig Working uh, on the island of Mauritius, which is okay. uh, in Africa, mm-hmm. and uh, or off the coast of Africa, rather, um, and uh, she's going to work at a resort singing. She's going to work at a nice, fancy resort singing to tourists, and she says to herself, "That could actually be kind of nice, you know, just get, get stay busy." And then she gets there, and she finds out that half of the gig is singing at weddings. And the first one is she's supposed to sing the theme from Dirty Dancing, and she breaks down in tears and sings it, like, all weeping and sad. And it's... it's like, I've had the time of my life. Yeah, right? yeah. It's actually pretty funny. Okay. I actually, like, that's actually kind of funny. It's a Wedding Singer vibe. Wedding Singer was over 20 years ago now. I don't think it's uh, uh, sacrosanct to do a Wedding Singer bit. This is cute. The... The movie starts getting like really contrived, like super duper mega contrived, uh, when it turns out that one of the weddings she's supposed to be singing at is the wedding of her ex fiance, who is here with his fiance. His and boy, does the script okay. re- the script bends over backwards to make that seem plausible. Um, <laughs> like they try to explain it, like, oh yeah, we're on social media and we're friends with the same social media person, and boy, does she know algorithms. And I'm like. Uh-huh. Um, of all the fucking places on the planet for New Yorkers to go. Um, but, uh, th- what really, really makes this awkward is, uh, they see her there. This is super awkward. What are you doing here? She explains that they're working there and he decides to tell his fiance, his new fiance, that I used to know this lady. We used to be friends. He mm. doesn't mention that they used to be dating or engaged. And as a result, his fiance thinks this is just one of my soon-to-be husband's old friends. I need to involve them in all of the wedding stuff. And it gets oh, really no. awkward. And will they or won't oh, they get back God. together? And wouldn't you know okay. it? Uh, her ex-fiance, played by Jay Farrow, uh, has an older brother uh, who is a super-duper mega-stud, awesome hunk of a man, uh, played by Cinco Walls. Uh, and... Um, Will they get together? I don't know. Maybe you can guess. When I, I see these movies, I always want them to go like full bore queer. Like, yeah. like she, she runs off with the bride. Please. That's what I want to say. Because the, and this is actually something I like about the movie. And, and there's actually quite a bit I like about this movie. It's, it's aiming low, but it's mm. hitting hard. Um, there are no villains in it. It'd be so easy. Mm. So easy. To make his new fiance a horrible person who's like going after him for money or something like that, just to just to make a, a conclusion foregone, mm. you know, just to to make it seem like everyone's going to be happy at the end. Someone, you know, it's fine. No, she's lovely. 
She's a really nice person. They're fast friends. She's really cool. She's actually like interested in like she she wants to run for Congress. She really cares about the their you know their community that she lives in, and okay. she just she's just super duper awesome, and that just makes this more awkward. Mm. Um, and that's fun. That's funny. It's good that these things are big. Like she even like they do karaoke for the bachelorette party, and it turns out that the new fiance is as good a singer. She just oh, completely uh, belts uh, of Nicki Minaj and she's amazing. And it's like, oh my God. And I still like them because they're cool, even though they're engaged to the person I was engaged to. That level of goodwill mm-hmm. um, is infectious. And that's why we go to this kind of like pleasing lo-fi rom-com. We just want to be charmed a little. Yeah. yeah. Um And they do that. There's a really clever uh, bit of low-budget filmmaking you can learn from this movie. uh, Where there's a guy... uh, When uh, Christina uh, Milian goes to uh, uh, Mauritius, she's picked up at the airport by a guy named Barrington. Uh, and uh, he's uh, she. She says, "Oh, so you're the uh, you're like the, the chauffeur for the hotel." It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm also the groundskeeper, and I'm also in your band, and I'm also like, oh, he's done <laughs> doing all these jobs. Mm-hmm. And the justifi- there's there's a justification in the plot, which is like he moved here and he fell in love with someone here, and he needs money so that they can buy a house. So he's mm-hmm. taking all these extra jobs. But what it actually means is. You only need to hire one guy to play all of these incidental roles at the hotel. So, like, if you're going past the scene and there needs to be a pool boy, it's just that guy again. And he gets to be in the movie a lot and have a couple of scene-stealing moments. It's a cute uh, cute cost-saving measure. It's a really cute cost-saving measure. Like, I'm just watching this and I'm just like, you know, I could teach this in a class. and be like, hey, what can we learn from this bit of casting? Because it elevates the character and makes a bunch of really minor characters who would have no impression whatsoever actually a memorable part of the movie and behind the scenes a very practical choice Hmm. this is a very nuts and bolts kind of rom-com but it's reasonably well made uh the the island of mauritius is fucking gorgeous like they went there Hmm. the they they they, they, you know looks good in the travel log obviously they shoot movies you know at, at beautiful resort locations Partly so the cast and the crew can go on a vacation. Oh yeah, no look at There's look at a... the look at the entire career of John Stockwell behind the camera. <laughs> John Stock, not Dean Stockwell, John Stockwell, who a lot of people know is like the best friend jock character from like the movie Christine, and he did some mm-hmm. other uh, movies as well. But then he started moving behind the camera, and almost every I think almost if not every single movie he's ever directed is at a tropical beach. Yeah, he yeah. did like Into the Blue, and I think he did. <laughs> he, did he do Turistas? Was that him as well? I did was some Holly Berry oh, one yeah, as well. Oh yeah, something like, like that. Uh, he, yeah, just makes movies about being at a tropical well, beach. You'll, you'll also hard notice, gig. You'll notice how a lot of Adam Sandler films also take place at like resorts. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Like uh, Jack and Jill, I know is a big mm. part. Like a cruise is yeah. a big part of that movie. Blended, they yeah, go to blended, South, they, South they, African yeah, resort. There's, there's a resort there. Um, yeah. We mentioned it already. Just go with it as another yeah. resort movie. He likes to fold his vacations into his work. I mean, if you can do it, I don't yeah. blame you. It's not necessarily like I I'm not exactly impressed per se, but you know what? Yeah. Good gig if you can get it. Uh, I can't oh, complain. Oh you know? no, we'll even have to go to a film festival and and Mauritius and Yeah, like it's, and, it's and, one thing and that, screening and I think that's in, why in the massage parlor. Sometimes I think that's why there's a film festival in like Sundance in like January. 
because like yeah it's starting to warm up a little but it's also like a whole bunch of people who aren't used to living at that altitude having like potential altitude sickness and also it could potentially get really super fucking cold and like you're driving the places in a blizzard and there's no visibility and um it makes you work for it it doesn't Mm. feel like a vacation doesn't anyway you're working your ass off at all those festivals if you're doing it right like you're constantly going to different screenings but anyway um so no, this is this is a vacation movie this is a a movie that is designed to go down smooth hmm. and it does the cast is cute it goes it does what you want it to do um i actually enjoy it and i'm going to recommend it so uh, on the critically acclaimed scale we review movies on the critically acclaimed scale that is from c minus to c plus where C- is the lowest a movie can get, C- is the highest a movie can get, below average or above average, and most movies are a C. C is just average. Uh, I'm tempted to give Resort to Love a C+, for doing what it set out to do yeah. really well. I think, on the other hand, though, that without listening to this review, if you had heard that we'd given it our highest rating, it would... Feel a bit hyperbolic. Mm. I feel like in a vacuum it doesn't look good. So I'm going to say this. It's a very high C. Okay. I appreciate a movie that does what it sets out to do, even if those goals are modest. And you can't take it away from it. It just, it's never quite so amazing that it's like, you have to see this. This is incredible. But it's well done for what it is. And the movie deserves credit for that. The people who made it deserve credit for that. It's cute. If you're looking mm. for cute, Resort to Love does that job. Uh so uh, I, I have a suspicion that you're going to say uh, A. Mofe is, uh, is a C+. Plus. Uh, it is a C+. Plus. Okay. Uh, that this is a, uh, making sort of the art house circuit in the big cities, but I, I imagine you'll be able to find it on streaming soon enough. Okay. And uh, yeah, I, I recommend it. I think you should seek this one out. I think it's, uh, like I said, I may be completely wrong about this, but this mm. feels like something really exciting okay. is about to start happening. So. Nice. That's, that's wonderful. Uh, Stillwater. Uh, Stillwater, uh, it is a C, but as it's a qualified C because it's tainted by uh, mm-hmm. sort of its irresponsible politic. And um, it, it, it's a pity because it actually is a very sensitive piece of work, mm-hmm. but it's not so sensitive that it took real life into consideration. It's how uh, sensitive can it possibly be? Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, the Green Knight. The Green Knight. Oh, heaven help me. That is a C minus. I, I think it's... Um, it it's it mistakes its style for uh, ideas and storytelling acumen, and mm-hmm. it actually doesn't. I feel like it doesn't have those things. That's a shame. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I, I I would like you to see it though. Because I, I I know I know I'm my my opinion is in the vast minority on this one. I actually I love Arthurian mm-hmm. uh, uh, lore. I love Arthurian film. I've seen most of the big Arthurian movies. I never saw. The Antoine Fuqua film, King Arthur. I always meant to get around to that with Clive Owen and uh, oh, Karen Knightley. Yeah, yeah. I know, but it's, I want to be a completionist about it. This, yeah. For whatever reason, that's a really big yeah, one. The, I never the, got the, around the to it. The Guy Ritchie was bad. The, the Guy Ritchie the, one was the, bad, the actually. The Fuqua was bad. Uh, it's, yeah. uh, well, it's but, okay. Um, but, there's a, but there's a lot of really, really yeah. great Arthurian movies in there. Some of them are merely interesting. Uh, some of them are truly epic. Um, if you're looking, I, for me, Excalibur and Monty Python are the gold standard. They're very different films, but <laughs> yeah. they do it really well. I, I think Monty Python kind of ruined a lot of Arthur, Arthurian mm-hmm. uh, films for me. Kind of undermined them forever. Yeah, it's yeah. Kind, of, kind of like, I can't watch you know, anything with Lancelot without thinking of him saying, Blue, thank you, and then getting arrested by the cops. Lancelot Duloc. See Those, Lancelot Duloc. Lancelot Duloc. Lancelot Duloc. I want to make sure I'm not crazy here. Uh, I want to make sure I... Yeah, it's a Robert Brisson film. It's oh, a okay, Brisson yeah. film. Uh, and it's a very 
pulled back, very humanistic tale of Lancelot without any of the fanciful trappings. And I think hmm. if you're if you feel a little you know tainted by Monty Python's you know comedic S- silliness, silliness, yeah. and you can't take it seriously anymore, that's a really really good place to sort of reset your brain. Okay, well, it's a really good film. I, I dig Bresson. Yeah, seen, and it, a lot of people don't even realize he did a King Arthur movie. Like he did, yeah. and it's a good one. Um, and then lastly, uh, our review of Jungle Cruise. Whitney, uh, where do you land? You know, it's it, it is a very unenthusiastic low C. It's not a yeah. failure. It does everything it wants to do. It just didn't have very big ambitions. Yeah, and I wanted it to. I, the, there's. There's so much more that can be done with this, the, the adventure genre than just do another one. And that's the thing. is, I'm actually not entirely sure it does do what it sets out to do. Mm. Because it clearly is setting out to evoke other popular things. It's not the first movie to do that. No one can complain about that. Star Wars does that. Who gives a shit? Mm. Uh, for me, I feel like this movie is trying to be an exciting piece of escapist entertainment. It's trying to make us feel like we're on... A ride. It's trying to make us feel like we're escaping to this wonderful land of adventure and gorgeous locales, and um, and that's where I think it fails. I think it ends up feeling like a very rote, formulaic, drab mm. ride, and that's not a good ride, is it? Mm. So it's not hard to watch. I can't, in good conscience, give it a C minus. But I'm with you. It's a very, very low C. Yeah. I just think, um, I think it, it. it flunks out on a different level than you do but um yeah but again the, the cast is very very charming it's certainly like airy and moves along reasonably well uh the cgi cat is never convincing for a second but i will cut you some slack because you put a cat in the movie proxima is a, a yeah. leopard i was uh, watching um uh, was watching resort to love and uh luca my cat luca our cat luca rather mm. um he's he's not in the movies he doesn't like watch movies he's a cat he got into Resort to Love. Like, he got okay. into it. Like, when, like, Christina Milian was, like, singing at the end, he was, like, you know, just sort of laying there, whatever, and he just popped up and, like, who is this? Who is this wonderful siren singing a wonderful duet or uh, ode to my greatness? Like, he just totally fell in love with Resort to Love. So I guess that gives a little extra bonus points. Anyway, that is it for Critically Acclaimed this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We will be back next week with reviews of films like The Suicide Squad. Not just A Suicide Squad. The Suicide Squad. We'll make another one called Suicide Squads. Oh, God, they probably will. Yeah. Uh, so and more than, more than one squad now. And uh, also uh, the uh, the new, uh, it's a Leo's Carrick's film, right? Yeah, Annette it, is yeah. the title. Uh, so we got a couple of big ones coming next week. I'm sure we'll find other things to review as well. Yeah, Annette is uh, actually a companion piece to the Sparks Brothers because it's an opera written by Sparks. Yeah, that's and, the hell and, of a they're, thing. and they're in it, and they've yeah. always wanted to make a movie. They, as they explained in the documentary, they tried to make one with Tim Burton. It fell through. They tried to make one with Jacques Tati. That one fell through. Ooh, that's and uh, but they finally landed Leos Carax. So at least they're pursuing interesting filmmakers. They sure are. Um, so we'll review that. On the next episode of Critically Acclaimed, thank you everybody for listening. We think you're amazing. We just think you're neat. Um, so uh, if you if you want to join in the conversation, want to talk about the thing we discussed on this episode, you're more than welcome to email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. I was under the weather last week and it messed with our uh, production schedule, but We've Got Mail is coming back this week. Um, so 
we might reach a balance up again, up again by sort of that. Mm. We also have a P.O. box if you want to send us uh, some snail mail, or sometimes people uh, want to send us uh, just whatever trinkets sometimes. Mm. Always mm. appreciate it. Very kind. <laughs> no, not a requirement, but people have asked. So, Whitney, mm. what's your P.O. box? Uh, it's P.O. box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Make it out to me or to William or to the Critically Claimed Network. We'll get it. Uh, if you want to, if you like the show and you want to help out the show, there's a bunch of different ways to do it. There's the absolutely free of charge way, which is to leave us a review wherever you find us. A star rating, preferably a couple of sentences. It really helps people find the show and show that the all of the people who distribute podcasts that the show is getting what we call in the business engagement. So, um, yeah, obviously be honest, but, you know, it really, really helps us out if you leave us a review. If you can afford to, uh, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We have a lot of exclusive material over at that uh, Patreon. We have podcasts dedicated to every single episode of Batman from the 1960s. Uh, we have a podcast dedicated to every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. It's called Only the Best. Uh, in the last couple of days, we released our episode about the first half of the 10 nominees of 1942, which is an interesting crop of films. Some films you've heard of, some films you probably haven't, because even we hadn't. Hmm. Um, and we also have commentary tracks... And uh, online hangouts and a whole bunch of other stuff besides. So that is all at our Patreon. And, of course, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. If you like soap, head on over to the Salt uh, the Salt Cat Soap Store over on Etsy. If you follow Salt Cat Soap on Twitter or Instagram, the link is right there. Uh, we just had a giveaway of some soaps and also one of M. Lopez de Silva's books. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll have more like cool events like that in the future. But in the meantime... Soap is magical. Everyone likes soap. Makes you feel good and clean. Uh, so, like, head on over to Etsy. We have a wonderful array of soaps. And uh, this coming Saturday, first Saturday of the month, we always drop some new designs. So uh, be sure to check that out. And uh, I think that's it, right? Am I forgetting that, anything? That's it. We'll be back next week. Well, we sure will be back next week. And until then, never forget, everyone's a critic. <laughs>